Hi, it's Robin LaRose. I've got a new Hidden Tracks episode for you to coincide with Jimi Hendrix's 80th birthday on November 27th. Much thanks to Warren Kopnick at Sony Music Entertainment Canada for connecting me with a major legend in rock and roll for over 50 years now. So get comfortable and settle in. Welcome to Hidden Tracks with Robin LaRose, the little heard stories behind the music, the artists, and their work. Special guest today is the legendary engineer Eddie Kramer. You may not know the name, but you know the albums and bands he's worked with and on the last 50-plus years. The Beatles, all four Zeppelin albums, Rolling Stones, and he's engineered on all four of the Jimi Hendrix albums before Jimi passed away. And in conjunction with uh, what would have been Jimi's 80th birthday on November 27th, the latest release... The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Los Angeles Forum, April 26, 1969 Concerts, which is available right now in various formats. So, to the interview with Eddie Kramer. Hi. Hello, Robin, this is uh, Eddie Kramer. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, likewise. Your name has resonated in my brain Ever since I uh, picked up a Hendrix album when I was a, a young teen or a Zeppelin II or a Rolling Stones, your name is synonymous with uh, the legends of uh, rock. How many years now? 50? 50? 50, uh, 50, let me see, about 54 years. That's crazy, isn't it? It is crazy when I think about it. Uh, sometimes I catch myself thinking, Damn, I've been in the business quite a while, but it's been a fun ride so far, and it continues to be. I love the music business. I love every aspect of it. Well, I wouldn't say every aspect. <laughs> There's some parts that you don't want to remember. <laughs> but um, it, it's fun. I mean, if you're not having fun and giggling about it, then what's the point? You know, music to me is, is a way of life. And it, if I can go in the studio or mix something or overdub something and we're having fun, that's it. Uh, it's made my day and hopefully the, the band's day or the, or the musicians that we work with. Um, recording is, is uh, part of my blood, I guess. Before we get into this uh, latest project that you've been involved with, uh, Los Angeles Forum, April 26, 1969, and coinciding with uh, Jimmy's 80th birthday, which is coming up November 27th, and by the way, um, belated happy 80th to you. Thank you very much. Yeah, Jimmy and I, uh, well, we were the same age. The album is a nice surprise uh, to have released from the Hendrix vault to coincide with Jimmy's 80th. Before we get into the making of the project, a little bit about the time you spent with Jimmy, um, which is extensive. Uh, I would say most of, if not all of your adult life in some shape or form. When did you meet Jimmy? How old were you and where? Well, let's go back in time. It was in London at Olympic Studios in 1967. Mm -hmm. um, I was very much aware of Mr. Hendricks at that point. I think we all were. Mm -hmm. uh, since he had come to London in late 66 with Chas Chandler and turned the music scene in London completely on its ear. And... Most guitar players were completely stunned. I mean, they were going out of the clubs crying, putting their heads in their hands, 
uh, just they could not believe what they had just heard because Mr. Hendricks was showing them all how it was done. And we watched it very carefully in the press. You know, there was uh, um, all the record magazines were just blowing up with Mr. Hendricks. And uh, the first single had come out, Hey Joe. And yeah, we were all aware of Jimmy, that's for sure. And then one very lucky day, I I got a phone call from the um, the studio manager at Olympic and said, this is a lovely lady. She said to me, Oh, Eddie, she's a very proper English lady. She said, oh, Eddie, there's this American chappy with the big hair, and you should do him because you do all that weird stuff anyway. <laughs> and that's literally how I got to record Jimmy, and I'll never forget that first day looking at him, walking into the studio, sitting in the corner, not saying anything. It was in January, late January or February of 67. And... Um, the amps came in, the drums came in, everything came in. We, I set it all up and started putting mics in place. And then once Jimmy was ready to go, he just stood up, took his raincoat off and walked over to the amp, plugged in and hit a chord. And I, my life changed in a nanosecond because <laughs> the hair on the back of my head stood up and I had never heard anything sound like that. Uh, and I don't think I ever will. It, it was just monumental. This was obviously where we're working on the uh, Are You Experience album because they had cut a bunch of tracks. Yeah. And I think Jimmy and, Jimmy and, Tra- and Chaz were a little bit unhappy with the results in terms of the studio studios that they were working in. And they heard great things about Olympic. And that's where we cut a whole bunch more tracks, overdubbed on the earlier ones, et cetera, et cetera. And the, that sort of... Uh, announced the beginning of a long-term relationship. We just enjoyed each other's company, and we laughed and giggled, and he played great music, and Chaz did great production. And did you throwing in ideas, and how is that creative process? Well, my job was to try to interpret what he was doing in the studio and make it sound better. Mm. And once he was comfortable with the fact that I could pretty much do anything he wanted and more, because I was always tweaking and twiddling uh, knobs, as it were. It was a little old knob twiddler. Uh, <laughs> but um, he, he liked that, the fact that I was using my imagination to sort of improve, uh, or if you could call it improving, but, but definitely inter- reinterpreting what he was doing and giving it another dimension. How long did those sessions take to get everything right and ready from uh, him in the studio and doing the knob twiddling and remixing tracks to uh, getting it all down onto the acetates? Well, amazingly enough, Jimmy would be at the studio, you know, along with his roadie and, and Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding and Chaz pretty much on time because Chaz was a taskmaster. Really? Because he said, come on, lads, we only got three hours or four hours tonight or six hours, whatever it was, mm. we would do in one night probably two complete songs uh, minus, the, minus the overdubs. And even then we'd do some. It was a very quick process because Jimmy knew what he was about and he had two brilliant musicians and a great producer. And, you know, I just, I just thoroughly enjoyed myself no, no matter what was happening. How old were you when you were doing this? Yeah, we were the same age, so let's see, I was about 23. Wow. Were you pinching yourself going, I'm working with Jimi Hendrix? 
No, I didn't have time for pinching anything except... Uh, get the job done. You know, get that bloody job done, mate. <laughs> Were you nervous that you might screw up? I was like, I got to get this job right. No, nervousness didn't enter into it because you're just concentrating on getting it right and knowing that... I mean, I had confidence in what I could do. Yeah. And Jimmy felt it and so did Chess. You know, it was a joint effort. Yeah. Um, Joint being the operative word, of course, in those days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you remember when all of the work was done and you sat back in the control room and listened to the entire album with, uh, well, I assume everybody else, Jimmy, Chaz, Noel, Mitch, uh, your thoughts on that? And you go, it was pretty good. Um, once again, I think the only time we did that was after we had finished mixing it and then it went straight to mastering. And then I do remember, in fact, uh, when we, there was virtually no break between the end of Are You Experience and the beginning of Axis, yeah. maybe a month. And we were back in the studio, and I remember uh, Chaz brought in an acetate or a first test pressing. We listened back, and we all went, yeah, that's pretty cool. All right, let's get back to work. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So there was hardly any space between the debut and Axis. And for Electric Ladyland, um, 1968, the year after, you went over to uh, New York City, didn't you? Yeah, I was asked by um, um, the studio in New York, called the Record Plant, to come over. Yeah. Gary Kelgren, who was the engineer, who had actually worked with Jimmy on, on one song, and uh, he said, well, man, you've got to come over because, you know, we're building a new studio and Jimmy's coming back to New York and yada, yada, yada. So <laughs> they, uh, they figured out how to get my butt over to the U.S. And I was so glad to arrive in New York City and feel the vibe because it was an, in, an enormous kick in the pants. Good grief. What a fabulous city. Uh, and I lived in New York for many years, um, either in the city or just out of it. So... I feel like I'm a New Yorker, also with that London blood. And then after New York, I went to Los Angeles and stayed there for, for quite a few years. So the the feeling of the musicians in New York versus the musicians in L.A., that's a whole different other vibe. Yeah. But New York was great because the energy level was so high, and Jimmy just adored being there because he could walk out of the record plants on 44th Street and 8th Avenue, and then go two blocks up, and he'd be in the scene club, which is where he would hang out every night, and then we'd be all waiting for him from 7 o'clock till midnight until he came in dragging a whole bunch of musicians. So it was a different vibe completely. <laughs> wow. The growth of Hendrix through each album you worked on with Jimmy, a masterclass in recording, I guess, was such a unique and amazing musician. Yes, he was on a journey that he could see the end results in, in terms of his musical direction. Each album was a, was a jumping off point. Uh, one can hear the progression yeah. uh, of how his music was developing and the lyrics and his, the complexity of the songs, you know, using backwards guitar and all the various pedals that were being utilized and expanded upon. So, we were creating completely different sound. Then phasing, which he really loved. I mean, he heard phasing for the first time and completely lost his mind. Mm -hmm. As far as the timeline goes, Eddie, moving on to uh, this live album, 
at the forum. Uh, th this was one of, if if not the last recordings of the Jimi Hendrix experience in concert with, uh, I guess, Noel Redding on bass. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was there was always a little bit of a, um, I wouldn't say resistance. I mean, I happen to love Noel Redding's bass playing. He started off as a guitar player and then yeah. joined the band, mm -hmm. and I thought he was the perfect foil for Jimi. Um, he kept it really solid, which if you can imagine... Mitch Mitchell, who's an absolute genius on drums, yeah. very jazz-oriented, but sort of combined with rock. But we never knew where the bloody fills were going to go, because we'd be looking at each other, there's no way he's going to land on the one beat. Yes, he does, every time. <laughs> but he was more adventuresome with, with with his fills and stuff, but Noel was very steady and kind of drove Jimmy a bit. And I think that tension between the two of them kind of got resolved when they were on stage together because Noel was really driving it, you know, and keeping the beat together. Mm -hmm. And I think this performance from 1969 is an absolute gem. And the relationship of Jimmy and the audience is fantastic. He is so on top of it and so connected with them. Uh, in spite of the fact that there's police around the stage and in front of the stage, you can't rush the stage and then he's trying to calm the crowd down and he does a beautiful job yeah. what a communicator he was yeah how did you end up picking this concert how did you how did you pick the tracks or was uh, this the whole set from uh, tax free to voodoo child well he had already done one concert there and i know management was very keen to get him recorded as much as possible which was a great idea thank goodness they did mm -hmm. um and this turned out to be just one of those great shows. And interestingly enough, that same day, there were a bunch of pretty heavy earthquakes in L.A. Mm. And in the middle of the show, actually, the, the whole place was moving. And Jimmy makes some cracks about earthquakes and calms the crowd down. It was just genius on his part. So maybe that... Uh, you know, that vibe about the uncertainty of what might happen, maybe that's what <laughs> kept everything, the energy level up. Oh, my God. Literally rocking the forum. Did you uh, rearrange tracks, or that was, that's how the uh, concert unfolded? What did you do to enhance? Or? Is, I, enhance is, is a word I use very cautiously. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I was, as soon as I said it, I went, mm, wrong word. Um, no, in terms of the running order, it's, Pretty much, that's it. That's how it goes. Okay. That, that is the show. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wonderful announcement by the KRLA uh, radio disc jockey, and you know he's telling everybody to sit down, and he said, "All right, make some noise, put your hands together," and the crowd goes berserk. <laughs> and then Jimmy comes on and says, "Hey, man, you know we're all at church. Ten days of sky. You know, let's get tuned up." And talks about the Smothers Brothers and. And then he's talking about the cops, and he says, hey, that's what happens when you mess with people in blue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. How was the... Uh, you, you have an opportunity and access to all of the Hendrix uh, vaults, I'm, I'm assuming, and you, you find this concert and, and listen to it and go, this is pretty good. Outside of the musicianship, obviously, and how stuff flows and, uh, you know, uh, the crowd and Jimmy communicating. Um, how was the actual uh, concerts sound? Who recorded that? 
Um, this was done by a local team uh, recorded before with Jimmy. They've always they'd always done a bloody good job. Mm-hmm. And the tapes have been in the vaults for quite a while, and we just decided this is the right time to put this out. It's it's perfect, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if you're aware or your audience is aware. This has also been being released as a Dolby Atmos mix, which I've just done. Beautiful. And and you'll be able to put on headphones uh, because there's a binaural mix of it, so you'll be able to hear the full experience. The quote is definitely there. <laughs> you can use that quote, the experience quote, because wow. it is. It's uh, the the stereo sounds fantastic. His performance is great, and then if you happen to get the Dolby Atmos uh, binaural mix, it's, it'll t- take your head off. Highly recommended. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> Los Angeles, April twenty sixth, nineteen sixty nine. Is it true also that uh, I was reading in the bio here for the album, ZZ Top singer guitarist Billy F. Gibbons had also opened for Hendrix. ZZ Top wasn't even uh, in existence, and Billy does the forward on uh, this project. Oh yeah, I mean that, Jimmy loved that band, and he also had them open. He, you know, Jimmy was his ears were open to everything. He, his radar was really tuned. Yeah, he knew when there was a when there was a good band, a good singer, whatever, and if it fit what he was up to touring wise, he would give him a give him a chance. And then he he gravitated into uh, the band of Gypsies. The only reason the band of Gypsies was put together after Woodstock was because he owed uh, an album to Capitol Records, mm. and to fulfill that contractual obligation, uh, he put together the band of Gypsies, uh, which actually started at Woodstock, because he actually says the words, we're nothing but a band of gypsies at Woodstock. Yeah. And within a few months after that, there's the band, and we recorded over um, two nights, New Year's Eve into New Year's Day, and the four shows, you know, we put that out just recently in the last couple of years, mm. the remix of that, and it sounds great. Yeah. But that was another direction of music for Jimmy, you know, R&B and funk. Yeah, yeah. Part of what was, you know, his his heritage. Yeah, I'm going to jump back here. I'm a time time. I'm jumping back to Woodstock, 1969, and you were there. You recorded. Uh, did you record everything or what? Yeah, I was there for the whole three days and three nights of drugs and hell, as they, as I like to say. Oh my God! Uh, <laughs> I wasn't on drugs, but I think the rest yeah, of yeah, yeah, every five hundred thousand other people. The only, the only drug I ever was uh, given was the vitamin B12 injection <laughs> in the bottom. <laughs> God, but I mean, at least it gave us energy to uh, stay with it for, for the three days and three nights. Yeah. And when you got to uh, the bitter end in Hendrix, bright and early that uh, Monday morning, um, how, how are you feeling and, and watching and listening to uh, Hendrix? Well, I was very surprised because obviously he was supposed to go on at Sunday night, and here we are, 9 a.m. on Monday morning, and there's uh, maybe 75 or 100,000 attendees. But boy, did he play on another planet that day. It was just a remarkable, remarkable performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, one for the ages, definitely. Yeah. Feared yeah. in the memories of most people, you know, that Star Spangled Banner is just. It's another. That's from another planet. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And that is included on this uh, uh, concert as well. How do the versions compare with Woodstock and this one? Well, this is earlier. Yeah. Um, and you can tell it's shaping up. And every time he did it, it, it took another bend, another twirl, another this, another that. It was a work in progress. Yeah. I mean, each one of them, I think, has their has its own character. <laughs> I can't wait to just sit down and experience the Jimi Hendrix experience live at the L.A. Forum, April 26, 1969. And uh, the set list goes from Tax-Free, Foxy Lady, Red House, Spanish Castle, Magic, Star Spangled, Purple Haze, I Don't Live for Today, Voodoo Child, Sunshine of Your Love. That was so cool because it's got a tremendous sense of urgency in this track. It was a bit raggedy, but it was Jimmy's tribute. He loved that band. He thought that Cream was just, they were, they were friends, you know, even though <laughs> Eric, you know, Eric Clapton was, was always in awe of Jimmy. I mean, I, the stories are legion about him seeing Jimmy for the first time. You know, I mentioned mm. that earlier. Yeah. But when the band was put together, I mean, they were great performers, great writers of songs, and Jimmy loved songs. I mean, look, he, you know, he, Dylan, he would take a Dylan song. Oh, my God, yeah. He'd done Dylan songs, about three or four of them, and every time it becomes Jimi Hendrix. In fact, when you listen to All Along the Watchtower today, and you hear how it's played by none other than Bob, it's Jimmy's arrangement. Yeah. So, Mr. Hendrix had a lot to give us. No kidding. No kidding. I remember uh, hearing uh, or listening to you tell a story about uh, when Sgt. Peppers came out and Hendrix listened to it and then he just played it in front of the Beatles <laughs> at a club. It blew their minds. Actually, it was at the Savile Theatre and um, he had gotten the album, the advance album from the Beatles. I think he'd either been given an advanced copy, not from them specifically, maybe their PR department, whatever, but he did get an advanced copy, right. studied it, and, just, and knew that the Beatles were going to be in the audience that particular night, and opened with Sgt. Pepper, and completely blew their minds. And in fact, George said to Paul, come on, man, we've got to go back to the studio and redo the bloody guitars. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. What a legend. And, and you, sir. What a legend. Oh, thank you. What are you going to do next? What's on, on, what's on your plate? What are you doing? Well, I'm doing a lot of um, Dolby Atmos mixing. Got Canadian clients. I've got clients all over the world because I, I work for either from my studio in my home uh, directly without any delay uh, using a special thing called audio movers and a Zoom. And I can literally hook up with Anybody, whether it's in Argentina or Switzerland or the UK, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, my clients are all over the world. How's your photography going? Well, it's going to be it's part of a new documentary film that we're making. Um, really? Called Behind the Glass and featuring a lot of the photographs. And that's a work in progress. The book, I'm writing a book for the same name. And, uh, you know, life goes on. Music is always a big part of my life. That never stops. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Well, it's it's an absolute pleasure to uh, speak with you, and 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 uh, very very nice to meet you, and I greatly appreciate uh, you taking the time. Oh, my pleasure, sir. Eddie Kramer, Los Angeles Forum, April twenty sixth, nineteen sixty nine, and and what do you recommend once again that people should listen to on their headphones? What uh, mix? Well, if you get the box set, I believe there's an app there that you can download. This called Binaural Mix. Mm-hmm. It's uh, taking the Dolby Atmos sounds and putting them into a pair of headphones. But one should, even if you can't get that, just get the stereo. The stereo sounds fantastic. Um, it's it's just a great performance. Everybody's going to just put their feet up and have a beer and. Rock on. (laughs) Eddie Kramer, thank you once again. Bye-bye, Robin. Cheers. Cheers. You've been listening to the Hidden Tracks podcast with Robin LaRose. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your podcasts.